Several months ago in the Peoria Journal Star, this full-page color advertisement ran on the back of the A section. In this announcement, Terry Nazon, who is reportedly a world-famous astrologer, uh, is inviting you to harness the power of good luck by purchasing her four lucky coins. Now she cl- she claims that each coin has been supercharged with positive energy for good fortune in the four main areas of your life: um, love, wealth, health, and happiness. Four color coins there. The front of each coin features uh, twenty sets of seven energy dots. And the back of each coin has seven birds hidden in a lucky tree surrounded by seven lucky stars. And she instructs in the fine print here in the article, quote, before you make any big decision, attend an important event, or even buy your next lottery ticket, be sure to get your personal lucky coins. Tuck it in your pocket and rub it whenever you need extra good luck. All yours for only... $34.77 plus shipping and handling. And the fine print at the bottom of the ad reads, don't be fooled by imitations. And, oh, you'll also notice the very fine print, good fortune is not guaranteed or promised. Individual results may vary. (laughs) I have no doubt that these advertisements work or Terry would cease to run them on the back of Journal Star and other newspapers. And one of the reasons they work is because most people imagine a life different than the one they have. Many of us yearn for a better life, maybe a life of love and health and wealth and happiness. And the question is, how do we get it? Morning, you guys. Welcome here. How do we get this life that we imagine? Well, this morning we're continuing a sermon series that we're titling, How to Get the Life We Really Want. Last week I began by saying the first and foundational step is following Jesus into experiences with the living God. And today we're going to discover the second thing that propels us towards the life that we really want, which is experiencing authentic community. So let's pray together. Lord, at the start of this brand new day, this brand new week, we pause to just say thank you. Thank you, Father, that you are good. You're a gracious God. Thank you for life, the gift of breath and soundness of mind, the ability to gather together today, even though it's really crummy weather, we can gather together and say, Lord, at the start of this week, we want our lives to fully count for you. Bring the kingdom. That's the prayer you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And Lord, not just here, not just in our lives, in our families, but even like right next door where Vineyard kids are learning uh, to to embrace your kingdom. Lord, where we work and live and play and go to school, we want to be representatives of your kingdom. Put power on your word to our lives today is our prayer in your name. Amen. On occasions when people are considering what they want to do with their lives, others may often find it helpful to suggest, well, you know, if money were not an issue and you could do anything you want, what would you do? Well, frankly, I've never found that question helpful at all. Two reasons. One, money is almost always an issue. The largest majority of us have to earn a living, and so you can't say, well, if money were not an issue, because it is. Secondly, I don't know what I would do. Quite honestly, you know, uh, 
at 56 years old, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) Through the years, I've imagined myself doing lots of different things, as probably numbers of you have. And yet, at the same time, I often feel a constraint because of what I have believed to be God's calling on my life. I look at others and think, well, they can, but I can't. Others may, I cannot. And I'm, I'm okay with that. But I share this to point out that at times I'm out of touch with knowing what specific or concrete calling or, or, or things that I would do if I could. I, I don't know what the life that I really want is. And maybe you don't either. And so I have to look outside of myself to find an answer to that question. And through the years, it's why I continue to come back to the Bible. Uh, the Bible, especially the Gospels, uh, d- describe for us how Jesus invites us into the life that is rich and satisfying, John 10.10, 10, the words of Jesus, a rich and satisfying life. And then he models for us what that life is like. Now, last week, we began looking at a few of the snapshots provided by Mark. He's the photographer of the four gospel writers. And we looked at how Jesus called his original disciples, Matthew, um, Levi, uh, Peter, James, Andrew, and John. And we saw that he did that with a very simple and beautiful and powerful invitation. Follow me. And I suggested that this first and foundational step towards the life that we really want, immediately immerses us into a wide variety of experiences with the living God. And we unpacked that just uh, uh, in in detail last week. And I trust uh, that you, now with the help of the Holy Spirit, are asking God to empower you with that one degree of change where you more fully follow Jesus and you experience God as you read your Bible, as you pray, or engage in the other disciplines that we discussed last week. For those of you who weren't able to to catch that message, you can go to our website, and the podcast downloads 20 minutes after the service. And so you can take advantage of following with us on how to get the life we really want by listening to last week's message in this way. Now, when we respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him, He is, at the very same time, welcoming us into authentic community. We don't follow Jesus alone. Rather, we join with a new group of people, his people, his disciples, his followers. And in this sense, Christianity, or following Jesus, uh, is very personal, but never individualistic. Very personal, but never individualistic. Jesus personally calls us to himself and then to one another. Now, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you're going to want to open up to Mark's gospel again, this time in chapter 3. Mark's gospel, chapter 3. We're going to begin looking at, at a snapshot provided by Mark today in the third chapter that illustrates this point about Jesus calling us as his disciples to himself and to one another. Mark 3, verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came to him. And then he appointed 12 of them and called them apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons and 
Here are their names. Simon, who he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Now, other translations of verse 14, where we read they were to accompany him in the New Living, might more accurately uh, read they were to be with him. Verse 13, Jesus, uh, the text reads that they came to him. So the first call is always to Jesus himself, to be with him, to be where he is, to to go where he goes, to do what he does, to Jesus himself. But then at the same time, did you notice how this is a call into a new community? No one apostle was called by himself. There were no solitary disciples. They were to accompany him. He would send them out to preach, and he gave them authority. Jesus called them as a group. He invited them into community. Now, they didn't have a clue where they were going when they left their nets with the hired men and their father in the boat to follow him. But they would spend the next several years of their life in a relationship together in a small group, learning and growing and receiving training and re-educating, being re-educated by Jesus, ministering, laughing, telling stories, arguing, being reproved for their lack of faith, experiencing God, seeing his kingdom come in that group of 12. They, they, They experienced it together. And so if you are a true follower of Christ, you will follow Jesus into experiencing genuine community. And this, I believe, is the second step towards getting the life that you really want. Now, as I shared last week, the Bible tells us that mankind was created, quote, in the image of God, unquote. And I suggested that this means that all people everywhere are created with not only the need, but the capacity for love and significance and security. But it also means, I believe, that we come out of the womb hardwired for community. You see, from eternity past, God existed in community. Uh, We certainly don't understand all of its ramifications, but if you embrace the self-revelation of God given in the Bible, uh, you'll notice that from eternity past, God existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit in community. And this mysterious and glorious unity that we often refer to as the Trinity uh, is just that. It's a mystery. Uh, We know that Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, are each fully God, equal in essence, and yet uh, subordinate in their functions. We don't understand all of that, but we accept it. We embrace it. No analogy is quite adequate to to explain. And so in some levels, uh, we just have to be content to embrace the mystery of this diverse community known as the Trinity. Uh, God exists. Whoever God is, and however he's chosen to reveal himself, we know that he exists in relationship. He exists in community. 
as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And because we are created in his image, so his destiny for our lives is community. Now, created in his image is a phrase in the original language of the Old Testament that has created some difficulty for scholars. No one knows exactly what it means, but I have a hunch that it means at some level we are wired for relationship and community because God exists in community and we are to be like him. So to be like God means we must exist in community, in relationship. And I suspect that there is a deep part in all of us that wants to connect with other people in meaningful and vital ways. Why? Because That's how God is, and that's because he's put himself inside of you. His thumbprint is in each of our lives. We want to share the most important things in life with other people, don't we? How many times have you you experienced something powerful or beautiful or dramatic, and you think, oh, if only so-and-so were here to share this with me. And that's why we take pictures and we we record it, we post it on Facebook and we we text somebody about it or we we send them a photo or we blog about it or we we make scrapbooks about it because we we want to share those profound experiences with other people. Real life is meant to be shared in community with friends. The biggest majority of, of adults will marry. That's what marriage is about, sharing life love and significance and security with someone else. And God's intention for all of us collectively, as diverse as male and female, as young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, introvert and extrovert, shy or outgoing, black, white, or brown, his desire, as diverse as we are, is to reflect his image as we do life together in community. Now, as you read the historical record of God's people in the Bible, you'll see that God has always been about building a people, not just an individual. Abraham, for instance, the father of faith, was called to be a father of a great nation. Uh, His descendants were enslaved in Egypt and then were delivered as a nation in the Exodus. God revealed himself then at Mount Sinai and called his people to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Exodus chapter 19. And then God gave Moses the law to guide and direct their communal life together. And then through the balance of the Old Testament, we can see this same theme woven into the fabric of the larger story that God was writing. His people always had an identity as God's chosen community. Now, regrettably, the majority uh, of God's people misunderstood the nature of their calling and election. And so what happened is it became a source of religious pride and exclusivity, where actually God's heart all along was... uh, He intended for them to be the custodians of his revelation and to continually invite people in to community. But Israel got it backwards. But the true followers never identified themselves as like individual worshipers of Yahweh, but rather as part of a worshiping community, a community whose God is the Lord, the God of our ancestors, 
They were always part of something much larger than themselves. And then as the New Testament dawned, uh, after centuries of sin and rebellion and idolatry and misunderstanding the nature of calling and election, we could see that there were still a remnant, a small group of, of faithful people who saw themselves collectively as God's people waiting for the Messiah. And then Jesus shows up, and he had to go about the work of reinterpreting their expectations and understanding of what it would be like to be God's people who lived under the rule of God in his kingdom. Jesus had to straighten out their stinking thinking because it was all mixed up about what it meant to be the people of God who lived under the rule of God in his kingdom. And then after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension to the Father, the Holy Spirit fell on representatives from 15 different nations that were gathered there at the temple to celebrate the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And at that moment, they were unified together as the church with a single language, the language of the Holy Spirit, marking the coming together of God's community, the church. You see, God has always been about building a people not just an individual, but a people, a group of people, Old and New Testaments. Now, regrettably, in the Western world, now we live there, in case you were wondering, um, and particularly since the Industrial Revolution, the self-made man or woman who pulls him or herself up by the bootstraps without the aid or assistance of others, of others and is successful, is heralded as kind of a hero in our culture, aren't they? And the Protestant church uh, has easily adapted this ethic, especially since the Reformation when the doctrine of salvation by faith through grace was restored to the church. You see, it was in response to the largely uh, uh, Catholic church's um, dogmatic emphasis on salvation in the community or in the church that the evangelical church after the Reformation was teaching that no, uh, an individual could be saved by him or herself through the personal exercise of saving faith alone in Christ alone. And while technically, biblically true, the Bible knows nothing of an individualistic believer on an island of personal faith, removed from and unconnected from the community of God's people known as the local church. Real people in a real group, uh, in a real location, uh, doing life together under the rulership of God. Um, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, as a cruisomatic, cruising from church to church. There's no such thing as a member of the universal mystical body of Christ. I'm a member of the universal body of Christ. There's no such thing, at least in the Bible. There's no such thing as a member of the Sunday morning church of the St. Mattress. That church does not exist in the Bible. Followers of Jesus are called into community, a local church, real people in a real location, living life together, fleshing out the nature of the kingdom. Now, experiencing community is not likely the idea that you and I would have had when we were first to try to describe the life that we really want. 
I don't think it would be like, oh, yeah, I want to live in community. It's not likely the first thing. And I don't think it's likely what Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi thought at first either when Jesus called them. But he called the 12 to a life that they didn't imagine, but that they later discovered they really wanted. Look at those guys, the guys that we've read about in Mark's gospel. Very, very different in terms of their lifestyle, their values, their backgrounds, their personality, their temperament. They were a very unlikely small group, very unlikely community. Parenthetically, there were three groups of brothers in the original 12, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and then James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, or more literally in the translation, James's Judas. I think, I think that's just really interesting that God uses filial or family relationships in the core of his work. But look at that group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So they're hardworking, weather-worn, blue-collar tradesmen. They own a fishing business together. Peter, impetuous, outspoken, in your face. Andrew, his brother, very deferring, always allowing Peter to have the forefront. James and John had flaming tempers, were nicknamed by Jesus as the sons of thunder. I'm not so sure that was complimentary. (laughs) They were perhaps racist and bigoted because they said, you know, they're not walking with us. Should we call fire down? So probably very prejudiced in their heart. Uh, The sons of thunder. I don't know. You don't want that moniker. James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less, was unknown. His brother Thaddeus was very intense, violent, had the dream of of uh, national world power and domination. Matthew was a tax collector. He was fiercely hated on moral grounds, regarded as the worst of the worst of the criminal, scum of his day. Philip, he had a warm heart, but a skeptical, doubting mind. Simon was named the Zealot because he was a fanatical Jewish nationalist. He was crazed with hatred for the Roman government. There was Thomas. He was a Gentile outsider. He was from Greece. He doubted everything. Bartholomew was accustomed to the upper crust life, a life of privilege and ease because he came from royal blood and noble birth. Judas was an embezzler, probably saw this motley crew as an opportunity to enhance his personal aspirations. Heck, these guys, they won't know if I skim some off the top. Can you, can you imagine a group of 12 more dissimilar people that Jesus called to himself? And now they're going to be uh, trained by Jesus, united by their fierce passions, as diverse as they were, and yet now going to be refocused and retrained for the bigger purposes of life in his kingdom. And they were going to discover the life they didn't imagine, but that they, that they later learned to, to really want, the life that they really wanted. Over the next several years, in the rhythm of their time together, uh, they came to finally understand what it was that they were actually worth giving their life for. <laughs> 
They had passions in lots of different ways, but now they were going to discover what it was that was actually worth giving their whole life for. There would be busy stretches of ministry to the large crowds, ministering to the sick and the hungry and the oppressed and the demonized. There would be times of teaching uh, on the hillside, in the, on a mountaintop, in a house, uh, by the seashore, in the synagogue, in the temple. There were private meetings with individuals and people who had questions or deep needs. And then there were also seasons where they pulled away together as a group to rest, to debrief, to relax, to recharge. Mark chapter 4, the next chapter in verse 34, 10 and 34, we read this in Mark's continuing snapshot. Later, when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around, he asked them what the parables meant. And then in verse 34, uh, we read, Afterward, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. That is, the meaning of the parables. Chapter 6, verse 30, we read this. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all that they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. And so they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. And so we see the the rhythm of their life together, community and ministry and activity and teaching and training, meeting with people in the crowd, in the small group, and then time alone together. And this is the rhythm of genuine, authentic community. This is what it looks like. And over the course of their several years together, each of them experienced a radical, profound change. You see, it's in the context of this new group life together that they were transformed. Not as individuals, but as a group, they were transformed. Each of them discovered the life that they really wanted and didn't know. And I even suspect that Judas the traitor probably realized a little too late what he really had. I think it was indicative when he gave the 30 pieces of silver back. I think he realized too late. Uh, darn, I missed what I thought I really want, what, what I really wanted. And by then it was too late. But, but we know the rest of the story. Those 11 men, sans Judas, changed the world. And tradition holds that each of them died a martyr because of the strength of their conviction and the transformation they'd experienced. So isolation and individualism are growing trends in the Western culture. Uh, in his groundbreaking book, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, author Robert Putnam states really well, uh, if you read it, uh, how in, in America and in the Western world, uh, we've, we've become increasingly disconnected from one another and how social structures he illustrates through the PTA, the political parties, and even the church, how they've become disintegrated. You know, just think, in the last hundred years, with the invention of the automobile, uh, the, the loss of the front porch, the suburb, the creation of the suburb, 
uh, the advent of television and more recently the computer and video games, we've become increasingly isolated and alone. And while the reasons are many and varied, I would suggest that people today resist the invitation into community for at least five reasons. First, no margin. Many of us would say our lives are just too full already. Uh, I, they're already filled to capacity with people. There's no more room for any relationships. Our lives are too busy. Our schedules are too full. You know, I'm already exhausted at the end of it. I don't have time for another relationship. Secondly, bad experiences. We've been burned by relationships. We've been betrayed by a close friend or a roommate. We've been unwillingly divorced from a husband or a wife. We've been estranged from a a parent or one of our siblings. We've been taken advantage of by a business partner who was a Christian, a relative. We've been hurt by a pastor or a leader in the church. Thirdly, fear causes us to resist the invitation. The thought of making yourself vulnerable to relate to others causes you a great deal of fear or anxiety. Uh, You call it your internal wiring, your personality or temperament. Call it your anxiety, intimidation, or fear of rejection, whatever. Uh, These things can paralyze us, can't they, from stepping into new friendships. Fourthly, some of us just decide it's just not worth the cost. You know, we do a a cost-benefit analysis of relationships, and we conclude it's bad investment. Whatever joy or delight or satisfaction would come as a result of the relationship, it's not worth what I would have to to give in. Others of you may be thinking, people are just weird anyway. And lastly, no desire. You know, you just kind of like the way life is now. You're happy. You don't want to see things changed. Now, I'm not going to shame any of you that embrace any of those five reasons. That's not my point in sharing them. I, I know there are others of you who uh, have genuinely responded to God's invitation. And for you, it's been frustrating that you can't make friends. And so you live on the other side of the equation, perhaps sensing loneliness or rejection. And we're all scattered in, in the mix somewhere. But I want to suggest to you this morning that I don't think God's intention for us has ever really changed. He's still about building a people. Since the dawn of creation, that's what God's been doing. He's been building a people. Relationships remain primary and central to what God is doing. Two great commands, love God, love others. Everything else is gravy. Love God, love others. God is still about building a people. I could say it this way. There are no solo flights in God's kingdom. I believe that the longings in our heart, some of the deep longings in our heart are never going to be satisfied until we step into God's invitation to follow him into community. God is inviting us, then it's up to us to respond. It's going to take a willingness on our part to take the risk. That is to say, you have to be willing to suspend those five really good reasons to, re, to, to persist in your isolation and your individualism. You have to be willing to say no to those five things and then step into God's invitation. You have to be willing to take a risk to be a friend, don't you? You can't just sit around and wait. You have to get up out of your comfort zone and introduce yourself to someone and begin a relationship, a neighbor, a classmate, people in the apartment above you, uh, the parents of your children's friends in school, 
members of the club that you, you are, are, are a part of or that work out at the fitness center where you do, or by golly, the members of the church that you attend. One of the neat things uh, and great blessings about starting a brand new church is that almost all the relationships are new. Everybody here is new. They feel the same way you do right now today. And so you just get to go for it. After the service today, don't talk to somebody you know. Go up and introduce yourself to somebody you don't know because they don't know that you don't know. I mean, they're all we're all mixed together, right? They're as nervous and anxious about meeting new people as you are because we're all new, largely. So today, invite somebody to go out to Avani's. That's where I'm going after lunch or after church to lunch. Uh, I mean, you all know that, uh, many of you who worship here regularly, but... And there are lots of other opportunities to engage. In several weeks, we're going to be going out on a Saturday morning to share God's love and kindness by distributing gift cards to people as we just engage them in prayer. Well, come with us together. Let's do that as as a community. You know, Melissa shared earlier about the Super Bowl party. Well, you know, who doesn't like a party? You know, and I, I, you know, I don't even. Have, my team's out of it. You know, the Bears like they died. You know, so like. Like, I'm just coming for the fun, you know, not to watch the game. But come and, and connect with people that maybe you, you don't know. Now, in our church family, you can also begin to take the risk of responding to God's invitation uh, by joining a small group. Now, please resist the notion of thinking this has been annual, like, guilt-driven sermon for me to be a member of a small group. It is that, but just like put that, no, 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 just, no, just, just see if you're still tracking with me here this morning, okay? Let, let, let me just contextualize this point in my message about taking the risk by being a part of a small group. In the Vineyard Movement for the last 35 years, we are only a 35-year-old movement. We began as a small group, uh, but we have found through history that Getting involved in small groups is one of the best ways to cultivate friendship and to grow personally and spiritually. A small group is a group of 5 to 15 uh, diverse people, could be at the same stage and place in life, maybe you know teens or junior high or, or adults, 5 to 15 diverse people that does life together. These groups meet somewhat regularly, two or three times a month, in someone's home or apartment or condo or even here at the church building or at an office, wherever. And when they meet together, they apply the Bible to their daily lives. Uh, They worship together, pray for and encourage one another, support one another through the difficult and challenging seasons of life. They meet practical and spiritual needs, and then they just hang out and have fun. You see, a lot of church life happens spontaneously. That's what communities do. And so small groups, communities, hang out, Go to the movies, share meals, go to the uh, Caterpillar Museum, uh, the, the, the Visitor Center or the new Peoria Riverfront Museum together. We celebrate birthdays. We, we have picnics. We play sports and video games. We help each other out with home projects. We just do stuff together. And in this sense, small groups are not a nice addition to the ministry of the vineyard. They are our ministry. We, we exist as a community, as a small group. I think that in the vineyard's history, we've been, now, now we're not great at everything. You know, the vineyard's just unique, and it's no better church than any other church in this town. There are 649 churches in the five-county area, and they all do wonderful things. It's just that our niche is, is, is what it is. And one of the things that we, we do well is that we've discovered that our personal and spiritual growth to maturity is directly dependent 
on our involvement with and our commitment to our, our brothers and sisters. That we don't, we don't grow to maturity in isolation. I love what the Apostle Paul, uh, f- how he framed this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3. May the Lord God make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again with all of his holy people. Amen. Do you see the connection there between love and overflowing and then being able to stand blameless and mature when the Lord comes back? You'll notice in the spiritual and personal growth passages of the New Testament, they're almost always connected directly to our involvement with learning how to love people. Almost always. Why is that? Well, because it's the way God designed it. You can read the Bible, you can pray, you can fast, you can journal, you can worship, you can give generously, you can serve the church and the community using your natural and spiritual gifts. But friends, there's a possibility that you would never grow up and mature because you're not entering relationships. And you don't grow up until you enter relationships. God is going to use people to cause us to grow in a way that nothing else does. Here's why. Because that's where you have irritating habits to overlook. You have opinions to tolerate, quirks to ignore, offenses to let go of, hurts to forgive, debts to release, prejudices to repent of. This is the work of the kingdom. Think the original 12. Group life in that group was not what you thought it was. I can imagine there were arguments and wrestling matches and giving each other the finger and yell. I mean, honestly, they what would you have expected out of a group of people that were passionate, arguing and prejudiced and yelling and sharing their opinions and telling each other what they really thought? It was in the the rock tumbler of that community that they were ground to be the people that God wanted them to become. Small groups are like a greenhouse. It's an environment that offers us the best potential for growth to maturity in a way that nothing else does. Why? Because it's in that environment that you can practice the one another's of the New Testament. By that, I mean the injunctions that the New Testament places on us who live in community. Love one another. Prefer one another. Don't judge one another. Forgive one another. Comfort one another. Serve one another. Accept one another. Bear one another's responsibilities. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Forbear one another. Don't provoke one another. Exhort one another. Consider one another to provoke to love and good works. I think that's what the original 12 experienced in their three years of community life together. That's what God wants us to experience in our shared life together. Now, please understand. There are many ways for us to experience genuine community. This isn't one template fits over us all. My bigger goal today is for you to embrace God's calling for you to enter community. And there are lots of ways for that to happen in your life. I'm not suggesting that the only way to experience authentic community is to step into the structures that are provided by our church. I'm not so narrow and small-minded to think that's the only way. But I am suggesting that it's possible. 
nor am I saying that this is that, that you will necessarily guarantee. You know, the fine print on the advertisement today is that it's possible it's not guaranteed. I've been in small groups in my 35 years of history that have bored the heck out of me. And I led them. I'll never forget the night. Oh, I don't even want to go there. (laughs) On the other hand, my wife, Tina, and I have led or been a part of a small group every year since 1980. That's a long time ago. Some of you weren't even born then. And they've been worth the risk. To accept the invitation, I can tell you, it's been worth the risk. It's been one of the consistent ways that we have experienced the life we've really wanted, even though we didn't know we wanted. It's been one of the consistent ways we've, we've experienced community life. Some of our closest friends, our best memories, times of personal and spiritual growth have come as a result of that uh, experience. And the group that my wife and I now lead on Wednesday evenings, shout it out. Who's there? All right. All right. There we are. It's been awesome. I did not know, with the exception of Jim and Lori, uh, one of those people a year and a half ago. And I knew Cheryl back in, when we went to Richards High School together back in 1974. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, it's been awesome. The last two weeks of our group life in December, we, we, uh, Carol received words of knowledge because she functions in that gift. And then we, we ministered as the Holy Spirit provided prophecy and gifts of words of knowledge and wisdom to everybody in our group. And the Holy Spirit fell and it was awesome. And then we capped it off with a Christmas party and a white elephant gift exchange. And we all argued over the bag of pistachios and it's awesome. And we're kicking it off again this Friday. And, and, and so, you know what? Everybody in our group has the same excuse you have. Our schedules are full. Our lives are jammed. We have very little margin. There's not a Wednesday night that comes by that we don't think, man, I got a lot of other things I could do. But we take the risk. We say yes. And then we're willing to reap the sweet reward of enriching relationships as we invest the time and take the risk to come on Wednesday nights. And then we, we hang out and do life together. And so, Start by joining a small group. This week, visit a group or two. The leaders are strong enough where if you don't come back, they're not going to crumble. Like, under rejection. You know, now they might be hurt to be... No, no. The way it works here, you find a group that gels. And so on that list that's in your program today, just, like, visit a group or two. We're welcoming you, inviting you into into small group life. We're not going to guilt you there, and we're not going to say you shouldn't come on Sundays if you're not part. We're just saying respond to Jesus' invitation into small group life. Take take the risk. Let me wrap up by saying this. It's not Terry Nazon's lucky coins that you need to invest in to find a life of love and wealth and health and happiness. No, accept Jesus' invitation into investing in authentic community. And when you invest in, in in that and follow Jesus in that way, you're going to find a much deeper sense of love, significance, and satisfaction and security than you ever dreamed possible. And you will be propelled towards the life that you really want. Lord, thanks that you're inviting us into a scary, unknown, but exciting community life. And we just want to be followers who experience it. And, and that real life is is rich and and scary and transforming and and uh, all mixed together. But but we're willing because it's what you want. And I pray that you'd empower our whole church family and those that are at the margins of our family considering to come in, Lord, that, towards this goal. 
And now, Lord, as we worship you in song and in the giving of our gifts and the offering and sharing of communion, just come by your Holy Spirit. We want to leave closer to you than we came. Receive these tokens for what they are, gifts that say we love you, we honor you, we bless you in your name. Amen.